This is Pastor Brandon from Olive Branch Baptist Church. You're about to hear a message from our Wednesday night Young Church service. Young Church is comprised of middle and high school students that meet weekly from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this message. God, we do worship that name. God, the name of Jesus. Yahweh, Father, you have saved us. Even when we continue to sin and mess up, every time we cry out, you save us. And then, God, we can worship you, and we we love to worship you. God, we're distracted by the things in life. When those things distract us, we call out to you again, and we start the same cycle that we're going to read about tonight. So, God, I pray that, as we talked about last week, we would break the cycle. God, that we would call out to the heroes in our lives to lead us back to you. And Father, that you would build us up to be a hero in someone else's life. God, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. It's in that precious name that we worship, that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. All right, break out your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Heroes, we're in week two. So what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about the first hero. First hero. And we're going to learn about him here in a minute. But I want to do a little bit of review with you guys. If you remember from last week, we had three points that we landed on. And the first one said that we cannot make God fit what? Cannot make God fit what? Our idea of him, right? Sometimes we get an idea of what God should be or of what God is, and, and God is too big to fit into our ideas. We cannot comprehend God fully. So we may think, well, that, it doesn't seem right that God does that, but it's absolutely right that God does that. It's not that he's wrong. It's that our human mind can't comprehend how right he is. Right? So we can't make God fit into our idea of him. You may have heard me say the phrase that God is not a tame God. Have any of you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? One, okay. Nobody else, really? Two, okay. Three, all right. So you'll see a theme about the God figure in that story. His name is Aslan, right? And Aslan is not a tame lion, right? Aslan is a wild lion. And our God is not a tame God. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be uh, fit into our idea of him. So God cannot fit our idea of him. God never what? Come on, dig back to last week. God never gives up. That's better, yeah. God never gives up on us. And then three, when we need him to, God raises up a judge, or as the title of our series, heroes. God will raise up heroes. That's what we talked about last week. We also talked about this cycle, right? That's what the whole book of Judges is about, is this cycle that Israel goes through. Remember, they've come out out of Egypt, uh, they, they, Moses has died, Joshua has taken over, they've won lots of battles. Now Joshua dies, and the book of Judges picks up right there, and they need a leader because they're no longer following God. It's supposed to be a theocracy, and they're not living by that. So they need a person to save because they go into the land, and they have sinned against God by not following what God has told them to do. God said to wipe everything out, and they didn't. 
So now, as we talked about last week, and we'll read again, it says that these things will be a thorn in their sides, right? And so they have to deal with this stuff. They have to deal with these people that they left behind. And now these people end up capturing them. So the, the first step, remember, they worship God, right? They're worshiping God. They're all good. All's Gucci, right? Okay? They're worshiping God. Okay? And then they start to sin. And they start to worship other gods and idols, shiny things, right? So worship God, then they see something shiny and they worship it, right? Oh, a golden staff, right? If you guys were here on Sunday, you heard Pastor Wayne talk about how King Hezekiah destroyed one of these idols that started in Israel, the bronze snake that Moses put up. So they had all kinds of idols. They would find shiny things and worship that, right? Because none of these other gods are real. At least they're not gods. And I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this because uh, this is something interesting that I I always thought about growing up, and the Bible kind of confirms it in some ways. Uh, A lot of people will say these other gods were not real, and I've said that, but in some ways they were real, okay? They weren't gods, but if you think about it, let's even think about the book of Job, okay? Let's talk about the book of Job for a little bit. I know we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but in the book of Job, Satan goes to heaven and talks to God, right? And where does Satan say he has been? God asks him, where have you been? And does he say, oh, I was in hell, and then I decided to pop up here? No, because Satan doesn't live in hell. That's going to be his prison later on. Where does he live? Here, on earth. I came from the earth walking to and fro, right? Absolutely. So Satan, when he got kicked out of heaven, took a third of the angels with him. What do we call them? Demons. Absolutely. And they're not probably like the pictures that we think of them. They look like angels because they are angels. They were angels, right? Satan is described, Lucifer, as the most beautiful of all angels, as an angel of light. And so they live here on earth. And what is their number one job? Lois is going to steal all the answers if y'all don't pipe up. (laughs) To what? To tempt them. And that second part's exactly right. To turn their attention, to turn their worship away from God into something else. And they have been using different methods for the past 6,000 years to do that. A long time ago, like right now, let's, think, let's actually talk about today. What are some way, ways that these, that these demons uh, divert our attention away from God? What? Fortnite, that's right. <laughs> Fortnite is one. You start worshiping Fortnite. Video games, that can be one. Idols, right? God puts up idols in our lives. We start worshiping. Some of those idols can be money, Right? It could be a physical relationship we're not supposed to be having. It could be a person. It could be something intangible, right? It could be our own pride. It could be so much. God uses so many different things today. God, can he use, or, or, sorry, uh, the demons use, not God. God doesn't use those. The demons use those. And demons, think about it. Could they use superstition? How many of you believe in ghosts? Okay. Do you know how much room there is in the Bible for ghosts? How much? None. Absolutely none. Now, there are spirits, but there was only spirits on earth for a certain time, and that was when, between when J- Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended, right? But other than that, to say that ghosts exist is to say basically God doesn't know what he's doing. There are two destinations for people's souls. You guys know them. One up top, one down below, right? 
So to say that spirits are still trapped on this earth is to say God doesn't know what he's doing. However, if people believe in ghosts, couldn't demons use that to their advantage to detract worship away from God? Couldn't a demon pretend to be a past loved one? Couldn't a demon pretend to be some creepy, crawly ghost? Could happen. Absolutely. So when we see these possessions and weird things like that, demons can use that. But let's back up to, to let's say, let's go back up 2,000 years. There were heroes, epics we call them, gods in Rome and Greece, and gods of all kinds of other religions, right? Especially in Greek and Roman, right? The Romans just stole from the Greeks. But in the Greek religion, goodness gracious, they had a god for everything. They had a god for the toilet. I'm not making that up. They did. They had all kinds of gods. And, and we know that demons could actually interact with people. At one point, if you read in, in, uh, not only in Job, but if you back up to the story of Noah and the ark, it says that the sons of God, that we, it could be one thing, it could mean certain kings that derive from old wicked leaders, but most likely it means these fallen angels. And it says that they intertwined with man and that these great, powerful men of old came from them. So essentially, if we believe that, if we, if we take that route, demons are inter- intermingling with people, right? And so God had to wipe out the earth. Demons can possess people. We know that. They can become super strong, right? We read Jesus. There was a guy who was super strong. Nobody could take him down. And they asked, who, Jesus asked, who are you? They said, we are legion, right? A host of demons. So think about all these heroes like Heracles, and Perseus, that have all these strong abilities. Couldn't demons use them and give them power and possess them to detract people's worship away from the true God? So if we back up even further to the time of the judges and all these idols and fake gods, wouldn't Satan and the demons love to be able to use those and make people think those are real? So we may think, why in the world are they getting distracted? It makes no sense that they are getting distracted from worship worshiping God. But when we put it in today's context, when we talk about things like ghosts and video games and idols and all these other idols in our lives, the method hasn't changed per se, just how they do it, right? How, the, the, the core behind detracting our worship away from God hasn't changed. They've just changed the ways we do it because we don't believe in that stuff anymore. We don't believe in all those other gods and demigods and stuff. So they have to find new ways to detract our worship. But back then, they believed that stuff. And it was more believable because Spiritually, certain creatures were using that to detract their worship away from God. So I don't want you to think of it as ridiculous. When we look at this story, it seems pretty ridiculous, but we go through the same cycle in our lives, right? So they worship God, they sin and they follow idols and other gods, they get captured by somebody, God actually sends someone to capture them, right? They spend time in captivity, and when they've had enough of captivity, what do they do? Turn back. And what's the big theological word for turn back? Repent, right? Repent. They repent. They cry out to God. God, save us. So God raises a judge or a hero. Yes, so God raises a judge. Uses that judge to rescue them, bring them back. They get rescued. They get saved. They worship God. And then back into the cycle. You guys got it. Keeps going on over and over again. So that's kind of what's been happening here. And you'll see, it says in Judges 2, uh, chapter uh, verse 1 and 2, it says, I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not break a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. 
Why have you done this? If we back up to Deuteronomy in the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy in, in chapter 20, verses 16 and 17, it says this, However, you must not let any living thing among the cities of these people the Lord your God is giving to you an inheritance. You must completely destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And Yahweh your God, as Yahweh your God, has commanded you. They didn't do that. So now, in Judges chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 3, it says, Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out for you. I told you to do it. You didn't do it. And I'm not coming to fix your problem. You should have been obedient. You weren't. So now, the second half of that verse, they will be as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare for you, a trap for you. So they keep getting trapped, and God's not just going to come back and sweep them all away. He's going to let them follow their desires. Sometimes parents have to do that. We think that doesn't sound very loving, but parents have to do that too. You can raise your kids as much as you want in the right way that you want, but when they turn 18... It's off to them. They're on their own. If they start making bad decisions, you can try to be there to help them. But if you continue to rescue them every single time, right, you're not really helping them. You're allowing them to become dependent. And God wants them to become dependent only on one thing, and that's himself. Where the case is different is they keep going back to all these other things, just like if we had a child that kept going back to all these other things. Eventually, we've got to say, enough's enough. You're going to have to learn this lesson on your own. And that's called what? Tough love. Absolutely. It's still love, but it's tough love. So God has to give them a little bit of tough love. So this cycle begins again in Judges chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, The cycle is now broken. They stopped worshiping God. They started worshiping other things. And this is what it says in verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel, since none of the Israelites had fought in any of the wars with Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not, been fought, who had not fought before. Pause. We're going to pick up in verse 3. But think about this. Why would God bring battle upon them? Why would God do that? doesn't seem right. Doesn't God want peace? God knows no matter what he's going to do, people have free will, and they're going to have to fight. So if they have to fight, God's going to bring a battle their way so they can at least train to fight so when they fight later on, they're prepared, right? Because people still have free will. So he wants them to be prepared. So it says this in verse 3, these nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, the Shinonites, and the Hivites who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. It's a lot of geography, geography stuff. Just know it's a lot of land and a lot of people in that land. Yahweh left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep God's commandments that he had given their fathers through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, uh, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves and gave their own daughters to their sons and worshipped their gods. The cycle has begun. They start intermarrying, right? 
And what this means is a lot of people, I will say, they try to use portions of this, the word, especially this part and other places like it, to say that God doesn't want you to marry with people of other races or of other uh, ethnicities or of other cultures. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is don't marry. They didn't want God. God didn't want them mixing with people who worshiped other gods, which is consistent with the New Testament, isn't it? It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Right? And these are the unbelievers of their day. Christ hasn't come yet, so they can't be Christians, but the Israelites are not supposed to mix, right? They're not supposed to mix with other religions. And the same is still true for Christians today. It's not a wise idea for a Christian to get married to someone who worships the Hindu gods, right? It's not going to work out. But there are provisions for that if that happens. If you're not a Christian yet, let's say you're not a Christian and you're married to a Muslim, and then you become a Christian, God gives provision for that. They say, stay with that person in case that person may become a Christian. But if they want to go, let them go. Because God knows it's not good for you to be worshiping this God and someone else to be worshiping that God. That's what they're talking about here. So they give their daughters to the other people to get married, and they marry their, uh, the, the women of all these other people. And it's not good for them. And in verse 7, it says, The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot Yahweh, their God, and they worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Here's what I want you to think about. Sometimes we have trouble understanding that phrase, what is evil in the Lord's sight. Have you guys ever said, you know, gosh, read something in the Bible, that, that seems a pretty harsh punishment. Why would God do that? That doesn't seem that bad to me. That's the problem, you. It's not about what's evil or not evil in our sights. If we went off based off of that, the whole world would have no moral compass. Remember, we talked a long time ago about relative truth, right? About absolute truth and relative truth. And the problem with relative truth is, is it says there is no absolute truth. The problem with that statement is what? That's an absolute truth. So that's broken already. So there has to be an absolute truth somewhere. And we believe that it's God's. But if we all just say, well, believe whatever you want to believe, this, you know, murder might be evil for me, but it's not evil for that person, so they're allowed to murder, right? It would be like the purge 24-7. <laughs> that's not good. All evil is allowed all the time. So sometimes we may think, well, that person just lied a little bit. That's not that bad. I don't think that's bad. Well, that person was having a physical relationship before marriage. I, don't, I personally don't believe that's bad, right? We say stuff like that. It doesn't matter what we believe. It matters what's important in God's sight. And these things were evil in God's sight. So what happens after this, we may have trouble understanding because we're looking at it from our perspective. But put yourself in God's shoes who cannot be around sin, who doesn't want his people to be around sin. And it starts to make sense. Verse 8, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he had sold them to Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram of the two rivers, and the Israelites served him eight years. The good thing is, it's not a couple hundred years like in Egypt. <laughs> it's just eight. And it's not even 40 years like wandering in the wilderness. But eight years is still a pretty long time, right? If you're 10 years old, how long does it seem until you graduate? right? That feels like forever, okay? So they served for eight years, maybe not a long time compared to history, but for them, that's still a really long 
time. But here's the thing. God doesn't leave them there. What I think is really interesting about this verse is it says God sold them into the hands of their enemies. God didn't just allow these things to happen. He gave them up. He said, they're yours. And did he just do that just because? No, he did that because what did they want? They wanted to worship other gods. They, want, they thought that was attractive. They wanted to go that direction. Right? Right? So he said, if you want it, have at it. He says he sold them. If the story ended there, it would be a big trouble. Big problem. But what did we learn last week? God never gives up. And when God never gives up, God raises a hero. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the first hero. In verse 9, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, cried out to God. All right, here's the cycle. It's going to the good end. They cry out. They're repenting. So Yahweh raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to the Israelites. So this guy named Othniel, I think I'm pronouncing that right. If not, forgive me. But that's what it looks like to me. Othniel, Othniel, whatever it is. It ends with L, which means it's got to have something to do with God. I didn't do a whole lot of research into it. But Othniel is this guy, and he's the first judge of Israel. He's the first hero in this story. And this is who he is. It says basically that he's the nephew of Caleb. All right, You guys not, may not remember who Caleb is. Honestly, I didn't. And when I was studying this week, I learned something. Hey, pastors learn stuff too, right? We don't have it all down packed. I learned something about this Caleb guy. And he sounded familiar, but now I really know who he is, which I'll tell you about in a second. But if you read, you'll see that he's the nephew and the son-in-law of Caleb. Wait a minute. Hold up. That sounds kind of weird. He's the nephew and the son-in-law? That must mean that it's his nephew who's married to his daughter. That's absolutely right. That's exactly how it happened. Because back then, our DNA was able to mix with DNA that's closer. So it wasn't weird. That's like Adam and Eve, right? They had kids. Adam and Eve kids had kids with each other, right? Because their DNA wasn't, wasn't diluted yet, right? I know that's a lot of stuff. But just know that in our context, this is wrong. This is not cool. But in their context, it's okay. Abraham, he had a wife. His wife was also his half-sister, Right? Because the best way to know that you're marrying an Israelite is to marry your family, right? So that's what's kind of happening. Just know it's not as creepy as you think in their time. So that's what happens. That's who he is. But let's talk about Caleb for a minute. If you remember last week, we were talking about Joshua and where Joshua come from, why we recognize that name. He was second in command to Moses. He ended up taking over from Moses. But if we back all the way up, the Israelites are saved out of Egypt. They're finally going into the promised land. And what do they do? They do the Baptist thing, remember? They take a vote. Not an offering, a vote. Baptists do take offering. But they take a vote. They decide, let's vote on this, all right? So they send 12 spies into the land, and 10 of them come back and say, no way, Jose, there are giants over there. We can't handle it. There's no way we're going to defeat them in battle. We're not doing it. Two people said, we need to go. We need to trust God. He's told us that's where we're going to go, and we need to do it. One of those guys was Joshua. Take a wild guess at who the other one was. Caleb. That's this guy. So Caleb is pretty familiar to Israel because they know him, right? And so Othniel is pretty familiar to Israel. So I think it's really interesting that God decides for the first judge, for the first hero of Israel, he's going to pick somebody who they're familiar with. Now, that's not common for the rest of the judges. 
As we're going to read in future weeks, most of the judges are unknown people. Nobody knows about them until God decides to raise them up. But Othniel is familiar. He's an established hero. Actually, we learn about him because he's not only a, a, a relative of someone who's famous, but he himself, in a battle, if we back up uh, some years, he captured a place called Kiriath Sefer. And he actually, through that battle, was able to, uh, if you think of like knights, he was able to win the maiden's hand, right? Through that battle, he was able to get uh, a wife from that. And this was an important Anakite town, so he's already fought in battle, he's already won stuff, and God is raising this person that the Israelites already know up. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God is raising someone up who already has a good track record as the first judge? So the people will follow him. Why, why do you think they'll follow him easier if they know his track record? Yeah, because think about it. Later on, God's going to remind them, hey, I've raised up judges for you, and I've rescued you before, I'll rescue you again. So far, there have been no judges, and they don't trust God very much. They're repenting to him, but if they had trusted him, they wouldn't have gotten into this mess in the first place. So God raises someone up because they're focusing on people right now, to be trustworthy. I, I think that's probably true. So he becomes Israel's first judge, and he starts to, uh, to, to win these battles. But before we get there, let's look a little bit further in verse 10. It says in verse 10, The Spirit of the Lord was on him, and he judged Israel. Pause. The Spirit of the Lord. What does it mean for the Spirit of the Lord to come on somebody? What spirit? The Holy Spirit. It's absolutely right. What does the Holy Spirit do when he comes on to somebody? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if he puts a little flame above their head. Maybe. I don't know. That's, that's how you know. The Spirit of the Lord's on that person. <laughs> maybe in the Old Testament. I don't know. I wasn't there. But uh, normally he empowers them with something, right? empowers them with wisdom. He may empower them with strength. He may empower them with something else or something like that, some sort of crazy power that we don't imagine. But throughout the Old Testament, there is pictures of the Holy Spirit empowering people and coming over people. He comes over David. Remember, David cries out once he sinned, please, God, don't let your Holy Spirit leave me. We often think that the Holy Spirit didn't come on people until Acts chapter 2, right? Until the book of Acts when Jesus has died, he said, he's, he's risen from the dead. He says, I've got to go somewhere, but I'm going to leave someone just like me for you. Right? Then we said the Holy Spirit came. Right? That's the day of, it starts with a P and ends with an Pentecost. Pentecost, that's awesome. Yeah, Pentecost. So the day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came. Right? And we think that's when the Holy Spirit started working. No, back all the way up. Even from the beginning of the Bible, the Holy Spirit had a hand in creation. Right? And he knows us. He is God. Okay, so the Holy Spirit comes on to people. The difference is he doesn't fully dwell them right in the back. You guys paying attention? No. Yes. Now you are. Yeah, because I called you out. All right. But the Holy Spirit empowers these people, but only for a time. The Holy Spirit can come and leave someone. Right. That's why David said, please, Holy Spirit, don't leave me. Because at this point, the Holy Spirit can leave someone. But now that's not the same way. Right. Right, Hope? Got it? Yes, she's agreeing. Okay, cool. So the Holy Spirit comes on these people, empowers them for a time, and then may leave. That happened a lot. That happened with each and every judge that happened. So let's finish uh, uh, 
Well, actually, let's keep going on. Think about the superheroes in comic books and movies that we've talked about. What are some of the powers that they have? Because we talked about the powers that, that the Holy Spirit can. What are some powers that they have? Super strength. Super smartness. Speed. Heat vision. Okay. Do all of them have inherent powers? What about Iron Man and Batman? Smart and rich and crazy, right? And Batman's a ninja. He trained really hard, right? So sometimes they have to create armor and things like that. They have to be intuitive. So the Holy just like every superhero is not the same, the Holy Spirit doesn't affect people the same. So like, for instance, Superman, where does his strength come from? The sun, absolutely right. What kind of sun? Let's see if you're real. Oh, come on. See if you're a real nerd like me. What kind of sun? What their sun's color is? Yellow. Yellow, right. Red sun drains him. Yellow sun fills him up. Blue sun makes him super powerful, right? Yes, I'm a nerd. I get it. But Corey's a nerd too, so it's okay. What about Spider-Man? Where did he get his powers from? Came from a spider. Just a regular spider? Radioactive spider, right? What about mutants? Where do their powers come from? It's in their name. Mutations. That's exactly right. Mutations. Okay? So their powers come from somewhere, and where their powers come from may affect how it affected them, so, uh, or how, what their powers were. So in this case, I think the Holy Spirit works in a similar way, not exactly the same, but in a similar way, the Holy Spirit gives them the power that they need. Maybe not the power they want. Maybe someone wants to be super strong and they get super speed. Maybe someone wants to be uh, super fast and they get lots of wisdom. Right? Like, what do I do with wisdom? Well, you can win a lot of battles with wisdom. right? So that's kind of what's happening here. That's how the Holy Spirit works. So in Judges, we see that the Spirit of God is not only a source of power, but it's a source of power to accomplish God's will. Now, these people sometimes use the power the Holy Spirit gives them, and they, they misuse it. They use it the wrong way. And God says, nope, you're not going to do that. That's done. We'll talk about Samson in a couple weeks. He was one who misused God's power often. That's right. Chase was about to beat me to the punch and ruin my sermon. No, I'm just kidding, Chase. It's all good. But the Holy Spirit can also be an inspirer, a motivator, someone who encourages us to do something. He's also a protector. Right? He's also a helper. That's how we read about him in the New Testament. In the New Testament, as a matter of fact, in John 16, 7, it says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that if I go away, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So I'm going to wrap this up real quick, but I want you to think about this. Imagine if Jesus was next to you 24-7. Would your life be a little bit easier? A lot easier? What if Jesus went to school with you when you were taking that test? What if Jesus went to school with you and you were being tempted in that situation? What if Jesus went to school or went, went home with you when your parents were doing something wrong, right? And you can't say anything because you're your parents, but Jesus can say something, right? What if Jesus was with you 24-7? Would that make your life better? Maybe not easier, but better? It would. It would, absolutely. But Jesus says, it is to your benefit that I leave. Because I'm only one person. Jesus was very God, very God, but he was also man, very man. And he set aside his Godhood to become a man. And he hung out with lots of people, but he couldn't get to them all. But the Holy Spirit can. So Jesus says, it's actually to your benefit that I leave, 
because the helper, the Holy Spirit will come. He's just like me and he will empower you in ways that you would never imagine if you only lean on him. So it is better for us to have the Holy Spirit than it would be to have Jesus with us side by side every day because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are still one, just like Jesus and the Father are one, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. And sometimes the Holy Spirit works through people that aren't even following God. In the Bible, we see lots of cases that the Spirit moves through somebody and uses them. Sometimes it even moves through animals. You know, God spoke to someone through a donkey? If He can speak to someone through a donkey, He can speak to someone through you. Just saying. Yeah, it is kind of mean, but it's true. I love you, but it's true. If He can speak through a donkey, He can speak through you. God speaks through lots of stuff. He, he, he even empowers today. I would say there are people who do not truly follow God, but when they say Jesus' name and they say the truth, even if they don't follow God, even if they're trying to mock Him, even the very name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is behind. And God can use that. The Holy Spirit can use that. So here's what I want to wrap up with, because it says this in, in, at the end of verse 10. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over Cushan Rishathaim, I hope I'm saying that right, king of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Canaz, died. So he powered Othniel, Othniel saved him, won the battle, peace in Israel for 40 years, and then, Israel, uh, and then Othniel died. But here's the thing about the Holy Spirit that was in him. Maybe it made him powerful, maybe he was super fast. So he was able to get to the king quicker and kill him, King Aaron. Maybe he was super strong, so he didn't need any weapons to defeat him. Maybe he was super smart, so he beat him tactically. I don't know. But what I do know is that the Holy Spirit that was in him is God, just as much as Jesus and the Father is God. And the Holy Spirit can be in us. It's not in all of us, but he can be if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The same Spirit that made Othniel a hero is in every single Christian that's ever lived. And not just for a short time, not just empowering him for a certain amount of years, not just for a certain instance, all the time. We can tap into that power for following God's will. The second thing is the Holy Spirit can use His power in many ways. Some of you may have certain gifts of the Spirit that are different than someone else having a certain gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will empower us in many other ways. And the third thing is this, and it's kind of a funny statement, but heroes are made, not born. We often think that people that are strong and encouraging and, and talk real well and are just are the best evangelists, reach so many people, the best teachers, they can teach the Bible, that th those, they're just born that way. It's not true. God makes people that way. God makes heroes. Now, What's funny about this is I often hear this with leaders. Leaders are made, not born. And it still applies here. Well, all leaders are born. I mean, all heroes are born too. Just doesn't mean they're born heroes. Everyone who's ever lived was born, technically. So I can't say this is a completely true statement. But what I mean by it is that heroes are not born that way. God raises them up. And God can raise you up. The creator of this universe that created everything, all the stars in the sky, all the galaxies, the, the stars we haven't even seen yet, the places we could never reach if we traveled a billion lifetimes. God created all that. And that same power can be in you 
if you allow it to be. God, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity that we can learn about heroes. And I pray that as we go throughout this week, we would realize that we can be a hero too. That someone may need us to come alongside them, not because of our power, but because of your power, because of your Holy Spirit. God, your Holy Spirit can move us to reach people that other of us can never reach. So Father, I pray that you would lift us up, that you would empower us. Those of us who, God, are on fire for you, that pay attention to your word, and those of us, God, who are a little bit off track. I pray that you would empower them, just like you empower all of us, to reach people, to tell them about your good news, and God, to show them who the true hero is your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died and saved all of us. But God, that salvation is useless if we don't accept it. So I pray if there's anyone here tonight that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior, God, that they would come and have a conversation with me or one of these leaders or one of their friends afterwards and make that right with you. God, if someone has been following you but has gotten off track, just like in this cycle that we've heard about, God, they're on the wrong end of the cycle, God, then not only would they repent and come back to you, but God, that they would break the cycle and that they would worship you all the days of their lives. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Be with us this week. Encourage us, lift us up, and let us be aware that you are our true hero. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from The Young Church. You can stay connected with us by following us on social media or feel free to stop by one week to our Young Church service on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Olive Branch Baptist Church. If you have any questions about this week's message or want to share how it touched your life, send an email to yc at obbcblackridge.com.